0: I would invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, and verse 14, Romans 7, 14. I do want to welcome uh, our visitors, Uh, there's some unfamiliar faces, I hope I get to meet you afterwards, Um, but we welcome you to Quenesset, and uh, we pray that... Uh, the time of the word will be beneficial to your soul, and if there's anything that we can do to help you, please let us uh, have the privilege to serve you. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. For We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Father, open our eyes to see, and for those who don't know Christ, may they find him to be that balm of forgiveness. May you grant them repentance and faith, and for your children that may find themselves in the midst of Romans 7, may they find assurance and find encouragement that only can come from you and your word, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I thought that I would just uh, come up this morning and just read what I just read in Romans 7 and look at you all and say, well, that's me. You're dismissed. Because if you are honest with yourself as a Christian, that is you, is that you understand uh, what Paul's saying. Now, we may not understand when he says, I, I don't want to do this, but I do this. I, don't, I do this, but I don't want to do this. It sounds like you want to come alongside Paul and just give him a hug and say, oh, Paul, accept that that's you and that's me. And so, as we resume our journey through Romans, and we're going to spend some the next few weeks in back back in Romans, uh, one of the best known chapters is what we encounter today, and that is Romans chapter seven. And what unfolds uh, from verses fourteen through twenty five is what makes this chapter so familiar, or I should say, well known. And what is Unfolding is the controversy that is out there. I don't know why it's a controversy, but nevertheless, it is a controversy in some scholarly circles. And the controversy is this. Is Paul a Christian or is he not? Is he a Christian or is he not? Is he writing from the perspective that I am an unsaved person and this is my experience? Or am I writing as a saved person and this is the lot of every Christian? Now, when you read your Bible, it's important, and we stress that here often, and rightly so, is that you must remember location, location, location. You must remember context, context, context. And if you just jump into Romans 7, and that's all you read, then you have every right to go and jump off the Newport Bridge. Because Romans 7 doesn't provide, in and of itself, much encouragement unless you look at it from the right perspective. And in order to really get Romans 7, you must have the bookends of Romans 6 and Romans 8 embedded in your thinking. Romans 6 and Romans 8 allows you to keep your head above water of Romans chapter 7. And so it's because of those three chapters, and that really is the substance of all Christian living in Romans Now, I realize, and we'll get there someday in Romans chapter 12, uh, where he starts unfolding the application of doctrine, uh, but this is the the doctrine of redemption or the atonement or justification by faith applied in the inner man. It's applied to who we are in what really matters, that's in, in ourselves. Get the inward person right and the outward person will be right. You never start with the outward, you always start from the inward. And so, as we look at these things, always keep in mind, and I would encourage you to, to start memorizing Romans 6, 7, and 8. And you say, Well, I can't remember, I can't memorize that much. Sure, sure you can. Think how much things you memorize now. But Romans 6, 7, and 8 are a foundational. Uh, chapters to memorize to apply doctrine of justification in your life now what we have then just to set those bookends in place so that we'll benefit from our time in Romans 7 is that Romans 6 is uh, for lack of a better uh, definition it is a position-based truth of the Christian it is position-based truth of the Christian Paul would come out of the gate in Romans chapter 6 and say that we have been crucified with Christ so that we are dead to sin and that we are raised with Him to walk in newness of life. And so, Romans 6 is all about us understanding our union in Christ, and it's from our union that we do battle against sin. It's always positional warfare before it's practical warfare. And then we come to Romans 7, and we could label that one experience based. It's highly subjective. Uh, Paul is just using the word I so many times in Romans chapter 7 because it's all about him. And when you start looking at the Christian life and you start making it all about you, you're in a place that you don't want to stay very long. Is The I is not a good place. Only in the context that I have been crucified with Christ. It's the elevation of Him and the downgrading of I or me that is foundational truth of the Christian experience. Well, Romans chapter 7 is all about the self. It's all about the self, and it isn't good. Then we come to Romans chapter 8, and what we have now is the mixture, or I should say the combination of Romans chapter 6, positional truth or position-based Um, um, Christian, based on objective truth. Romans 7 is experience-based, based based so much on faulty emotions and feelings, whereas Romans 8 is both. Romans 8 is a position, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and then he would unfold the Spirit-filled life or the Spirit-guided life in Romans chapter 8. The right type of spirit, uh, of experience. Romans 7 is the experience of I, 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 I. And Romans 8 is the experience of I'm in Christ and the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. In fact, you will find in Romans chapter 8 that the reference to the Holy Spirit appears 19 times. You will find reference to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 7 zero times. Because it's all about Paul. It's not, all, it's not about you know the, the centrality of Christ in Romans six and the centrality of the Spirit, which points to Christ in Romans chapter eight. But Romans seven is important because not all of us live in Romans six, not all of us live in Romans eight, and but all of us will live in Romans seven. And I would argue that what unfolds is the experience of the believer, and we'll talk about that. And you'll see the outline that I gave you and. Uh, um, this is not an easy passage. This is not an easy passage. That's why uh, I was just going to read it to you and then just walk out. <laughs> but what we have here is two questions. Is Paul an co- unconverted man? Is Paul a Christian who struggles with sin? So what I want to do is I want to take the arguments of those who would say that he is not a Christian in writing this. And I want to take their arguments that they try to make him not a Christian and actually turn them to validate that we are Christians because of what he's experienced. And then I want to look at the argument, which I think is the biblical one, that Paul is indeed a Christian, and then we'll look at, um, we'll look at those evidences to help us to gain more assurance. And then our third stop in Romans chapter 7, so at least three weeks, uh, we're going to look at the believer and daily war against sin. The believer in daily war against sin, which will gain much, much help from how we see uh, Paul doing so in Romans 7. Now, the reason why we're doing this, and there's going to, it's a three-pronged approach, is number one is I want us to build assurance of salvation. There's not a single Christian in the world that has not at one time or another questioned their salvation. They doubted their salvation. Okay, So we want to look at Romans 7 with the goal to build salvation from the evidence that supports us being a Christian. We also want to um, find encouragement and assurance because the greatest Christian who ever lived, the Apostle Paul, is living in Romans 7, and he would say, Oh, wretched man, that I am. I don't need super Christian. I need the Christian who is in the trenches with me. I need the Christian who struggles like me. I need the Christian that can come alongside me and share their hurts and not be afraid that they're going to be looked down because I'm the reverend and look down upon them. I need the Christian that can come to me and say, I'm really struggling with this, and I'm able to look at them and say, me too. And you need to be able to do that too. One of the worst forms, one of the worst diseases in a Christian is a Christian who thinks they've arrived and is cloaked in a pride that they're not even aware of. And so Paul is not being a prideful man here. We'll see where he was, and we'll see that that indeed is a mark not of a Christian. Or if you are a Christian and you have entrenched pride, then you're probably a miserable Christian. But Let's take a look then at these things. What are the arguments first of Paul being unconverted? He's not a Christian. The first thing we see then is in verse 14. Now what we do know that from verses 7 to 13, he is describing him as a non-Christian. He is describing him in an unconverted state because he talked about the law having killed him, had sin, sin caused death up in him. So he's talking about that. But there is a clear transition in verse 14 that shows he's not talking about what he was. He's talking about what he is. And we'll see that uh, even in the simplest ways of seeing the tense verbs, the tense verbs uh, in this section. So the first thing we see that those who would say that Paul is unconverted is in 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So the person would say, see, the Apostle Paul says he's sold under sin. He can't be converted. And here's a distinction. Being sold under sin is not being in bondage to sin. And there is a difference. When Paul says in verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin, he makes a distinction that there is a part of him that is sold under sin, but it's not the entirety of his person. He says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, this would seem to go contrary to what Paul would say in Romans 6. And that's why it's important that as you read Romans 7, you make reference back to Romans 6 and you make reference ahead to Romans 8 so that you can get improper interpretation. Uh, I'm all in favor of using commentaries, but make sure that your best commentary is your Bible. The Bible is the best commentary to the Bible. And so look at Romans 6. Go back to Romans 6 here. If the person would say that Paul, because he says I'm sold under sin, is unconverted, then what does this person do with what he's already said is his position in Romans chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The bondage of sin. And verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. He never once says anything about being sold. He says being in total bondage. Of domineering in your life. And then in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. Have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And he refers again in verse 18 back to verse 7, having been set free from sin. There is a difference, as I mentioned, in being in absolute bondage to sin, which the unregenerate is. They can't help but sin. They, all they think about is sin. All they are is sin. And Paul is saying, I'm sold to sin, but I'm not in bondage to sin. And he says the reason why in verse 14 that I am sold into sin, it is because of the reoccurring theme of the weakness of the flesh. The exploitation of the flesh because of sin. Now the word sold is an interesting word. It means to exchange or to sell. The word was often used in, in, in reference to warfare. Is that enemies would come in and overcome an area... And they would take the, uh, the captives. And they were sold as slaves. And they were sold as what they were not in their original condition. Now stay with me on this. This is very important. Paul was saying, yes, I've been sold unto sin because of the deceptiveness of my flesh. Because of the, uh, uh, of the remaining fallen humanness of me. But I am no longer what I was by nature. The, the, the word sold refers to being something now that you were not. And so Paul's not saying that now I'm back under the bondage of sin again. Not at all. He's saying that because of what's happened to me in Romans chapter 6, I still fight an intense battle every day, and I fail often to where it feels like I'm sold under sin, or I'm in bondage to sin, and he's not. So here's the application for us for your encouragement. You may feel like you're in bondage to a certain sin. You may feel like there's just these these besetting sins that you just can't overcome. And that you try and you try and you try and you just fail and you fail and you fail. I would argue, quit trying and memorize Romans 6. And apply what has happened to you in Christ to your experience and you're going to find that your trying is going to cease and your relying is going to increase and your relying is going to empower you not to be sold under sin and so then the application for us is actually a form of, of, of assurance because we're not under the dominion of sin and just because I struggle or that the enemy or some enemy's sins have overcome me and have sold me under sin, it doesn't mean that I'm in bondage to sin. And so that's an important distinction in the Christian life. If you are a Christian today, sin's power has been broken. is The dominion is no longer with you. Now, you may feel the dominion. It's just like we studied in uh, the ABF this morning about assurance. You can lack assurance of salvation and yet have assurance because your assurance is not based on yourself. It's based on the promises of God and the work of Christ. And so you may not feel Christ, and you may look in the mirror and say, I don't feel like, I don't feel like a Christian today. And anybody you ever wake up, even on a Sunday morning, and say, I just don't feel like a Christian today? Yeah, you have. I have like two hours ago. I'm just kidding you on that. But the point I want to get at here is my, my struggle is real just like yours. Is that we've got to understand that just because you feel like you're in bondage to sin, if you've been set loose by Christ, you are not in bondage. Though you may find yourself sold unto the, the trappings of your flesh. There's a distinction. Bondage means it's all you can do. Sold to means it's not. Well, here's a second argument that Paul is an unconverted man. The first one doesn't hold. The second one is verse 18. Look what he says. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now, notice what he does. In verse 14, he says, I'm sold under sin in my flesh. Now, in verse 18, he says, nothing good dwells in me, but notice what he says, in my flesh. He is making a very clear distinction, a very clear distinction that there's something happening inside of him. And in Romans 3.12, we are told earlier, no one does good, no, not one. And that the totality of the unsaved person is that nothing good dwells in them, and nothing that they can do will ever be good. And you say, well, I know some human beings that do pretty good things, and I do too. But you must ask yourself, whose definition of good are you measuring that by? And it always has to be God's. God's measurement of good isn't that you're trying and you're accomplishing a certain amount. No, his definition of good God is absolute perfection. And all of us would say, well, that's not me. And so when Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, he says, that is in my unredeemed humanness. He is telling me that what remains in me, even though I'm born again, what remains in me can produce nothing of good. And Jesus would affirm that in John chapter 6 verse 63 where he would say it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But here's a very very encouraging part and here's the assurance. Paul would acknowledge that nothing good dwells in him in his unredeemed humanity. By virtue of saying that he allows for something else or I should say someone else to dwell within him. And Romans 6 and 8 teaches us what? Who dwells within us. The living Christ by His Spirit. So yes, in our fallen humanness, we don't produce anything good. In fact, our fallen humanness, our flesh, it wants nothing to do with God. It still wants to rebel against God. It still wants you to stay away from church. It still wants you not to read your Bible. It still wants you not to pray. And that's the intensity of the warfare. As you have this this inward other person... That's doing battle against this. And we'll talk more about that as we, as we march on here. So when he says here that uh, nothing good is in, in him, he's right. Nothing good is, but someone good is. Someone good is. And when you're in the, in, in the real depths of Romans 7 and you don't even feel like a Christian, you need to remember Romans 6 and who dwells within you. And who is empowering you and sustaining you even when you don't even realize it. Some of you are going through some very, very, very deep waters right now. We have a lot of people in our church that are suffering. They're going through some deep, deep waters. And they're in it and there are times that they don't feel that they can take another wave over the bow of their ship. They feel that they have got to the point, I just can't take this anymore. And you know what happens? What happens? They get up the next morning, and they look back, and they did take it another day. And they look back another day, and another day, and another day. And then when whatever this period is, and God gives reprieve, you'll look back, and you know what you'll realize? He was as close to you as he ever has been, and you didn't realize it. That's because of what? That's because in and of myself, there's nothing good. But in and of my redeemed person, there is someone good. And he dwells within. And because of Romans 6, I am dead with Christ. I am raised with Christ. And because of Romans 8, with the spirit of adoption. And and I'm looking forward to spending multiple weeks in studying the doctrine of of adoption. Because when when we get a hold of what it means to be an adopted child of God, we will be on the pathway to sustain joy in our lives. But that's for down the road. In Romans chapter 7, though, Paul is not an unconverted man just because he says nothing good is in him. Because he's right, there is nothing good in his unredeemed flesh, but there is someone unbelievably good that dwells within. Christ in him, the hope of glory. So for you that are in those those tsunami of trials right now and that you're feeling overwhelmed, uh, let me encourage you. You don't always have a felt Christ, but you always have Christ. You will not always feel the presence of Christ. You will someday, and that's called heaven. For now, we walk by faith. And though you may be crushed inside, Paul says that we are crushed, but we're not perplexed. Though we are at the end of our rope, we're still holding on because him who holds the rope is holding us. And so the, the, the second evidence that, that the liberals would say that uh, Paul's not converted because nothing good is in him, it doesn't hold water either. Because by virtue of making the distinction in the flesh, that means there's some other part of him that is open to the indwelling of the living God. Now let's look at verses 19 and 20. Here's a third support that builds assurance. Which those would say, no, this is evidence he's not converted. And it's that sin seems to dominate in our lives. Sin seems to dominate in our lives. Verse 19 and 20, and we'll spend more time in this, Lord willing, next week. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What What a statement. It's absolutely, from a human perspective, it makes no sense whatsoever. And if you would have an unregenerate person read that, they would say, this guy is a lunatic. This guy, this guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. And without even reading it, they would say, he doesn't even understand himself. And then we'd take him to the next verse, says, you're right, he doesn't. Is it only the believer is able to, uh, to rightly say, The cause of this feeling of dominance in their life is the presence of an invader. And the invader is sin. How many of you have felt this in Romans 7, 19 through 20, that I'm just so tired. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that that, uh, I don't want to do, that's all I keep doing. I just, I'm so tired of failing the Lord. I'm so tired of falling short. You know what that is? That is a sign of new life. That is actually a form of assurance. And it sure doesn't seem like assurance, but it is. Because the unbeliever doesn't have that tension. The unbeliever does not at all. Matter of fact, the the unbeliever takes pleasure in these very things. Spurgeon said this, quote, I thank God with all my heart that I have never known what it is to be out of the seventh chapter of Romans. And because of Romans 6 and 8, he says this, he goes on, he goes, nor have I been out of the 8th of Romans either. The whole passage has been solid truth to my experience. So Spurgeon had learned to thank God for Romans 7, because after Romans 7 comes Romans 8. And there's your life preserver in the midst of that. Let's take a look at the uh, continue one. In Romans chapter 3, you don't need to turn, I'll read it. Where Paul says, I do not do the good I want. And he hates it. He, 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 he despises himself for not measuring up. The unregenerate has nothing to do with that. In fact, they take pleasure in the evil that Paul feels prone to. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we saw from Romans chapter 1, they take great delight in doing those things. That's not the Apostle Paul. Yes, Paul feels as though sin is dominant in his life. But the very thing that that seems to hang over him is the very thing that he hates. And what is he describing? He's describing Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Have you not experienced that? And tell me what happens when that is your experience. It, It creates within you, and I'll mention this further on as we conclude. It creates within you The number one virtue that is necessary, one, to become a Christian, secondly, to grow as a Christian, and that is not love. It is humility. In the absence of humility, there is no spiritual growth. That's why I read 1 Corinthians 13. You can know all knowledge. You can have all faith. But if you don't have love, you are like a sounding piece of brass. You're nothing in the eyes of God. And so when we understand what Paul was saying here, this intense battle, this intense battle, is the mark of the Christian. And the end goal of that is that God would be exalted in his sustaining grace, and we would be lowered in our humility, knowing that we can't do this. We can't do this. When you get to the point in your life, in my life, when I understand that I can't live one second of the Christian life in the strength of myself, you've just discovered the Christian life. You've just discovered what the Christian life is. When Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing, you don't need to be a Greek scholar. Nothing means nothing, and that's what nothing means. When he says, I can do, I can do. Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Don't try to parse that, and don't try to say, well, he really means that I can do something. No, he means nothing. And the reason why that is so is because... If he's to receive glory for everything from start to finish in all of creation and in salvation, that means we can add not one single speck of anything. Because if we do, we're going to say, well, a little bit of glory. Just, I just want a little bit. I hung in there. I defeated this sin. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do Nothing. Now let's take a look at verse 24 and 25. Here is the, um, here's a fourth argument for Paul um, being an unsaved man, man. There's a sense of hopelessly being undone. He says, wretched man that I am. So some commentators and some scholars say, see, see Paul can't be a Christian because he says he's a wretched man. I would say that only the Christian can say I'm a wretched man. Only the Christian can know the depth of depravity, because no one in the natural world knows about their depravity. That can only occur. That can only occur when the Spirit of God brings the, the, the gentle but very strong. And I know it seems it sounds like a contradiction, but He is dove-like for a reason. He comes in dove-like but convicting power to laser guide the law of God upon the sinner that the sinner becomes a wretched person. If you would go out and talk to your neighbors, and I hope you do, and you talk to maybe family members, and you would ask them, um, are you a wretched, nasty sinner who deserves hell? They're going to look at you and say, absolutely not. I'm fairly good. You know, I'm not like them, or I don't do this. Or I do do that. You know what that is? That is the person who has no idea of the standard that God has upon his creatures. And as, as thus, thus they give themselves a pass or they cut themselves uh, on a curve in, in, in the eyes of God. If Paul was going to say this wretched man that I am, that's because there's only one person that can convince him that he was a wretched man and it wasn't Paul. It's only the Spirit of God that can do this. Only the Spirit of God can do this. Only the saved know this depth of depravity. But I want you to note also in verse 25, if you as a Christian, and some of, some of us have had this, this dispensation that's somewhat negative. We're kind of the melancholy type. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we're always looking at the negative side. Maybe we're, everything's chicken little. Maybe that's some of us. Well, if you stay in verse 24, you're going nowhere. Even in the midst of Paul's awareness that nothing good about him, that sin seems to dominate in his life, he was able to say in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, as I use the illustration of hard times in your life, when you're going through that and you feel all alone and all abandoned, And you're crying out Psalm 13 to the Lord, how long, how long, how long when you feel all that, when you know at the end of the day, at the end of all your grieving and all your suffering, that you are holding on to the hem of his garment, that's exactly what 25 is. Paul was saying, I'm a wretched man beyond compare, I'm the chiefest of sinners, but thanks be to God for the gospel. Thanks that I can see myself for what I am and I can go beyond that and to see how you see me in your son because of the gospel. So the description of the wretched man is the description of the believer who is clinging to the gospel. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He never lost sight that he was a wretched man and he never lost sight that God gives mercy to wretched people. In fact, that's the only people that get it. Those who acknowledge their total undoneness before him. And the final argument, the fifth one, that they attempt to uh, make Paul an unconverted person is because there's no reference, and I, I, I gave this to you earlier, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit in the entire chapter. So that means uh, he must be unsaved because the agent of conversion is the Holy Spirit. He's not mentioned, so we conclude that Paul is unsaved. Uh, you cannot, it's a, it's a dangerous practice to build an argument out of silence. You've got to be careful with that. Especially when there are other portions of Scripture that are very clear, that brings to bear what we're talking about. And throughout the Scripture, we know that the Holy Spirit is the agent of redemption. He is the one that applies Christ's work of atonement to us. So then, we conclude then on Paul's the argument that Paul is not a Christian uh, by those five evidences. And those who would hold on to that saying, see, he's not a Christian, I would just turn them right back around like we have and say, no, those are actually evidences that he is a Christian. Now, he may feel like he's sold under sin like we do, but we're not. We may feel like there's nothing about our life that is good, and that's all because we forgot Christ within. We may feel like sin has placed us back in bondage because we keep falling to the same thing, but that's not true. It's just we haven't learned to live Romans 8. Romans 8. And we may feel like a wretched sinner, not a royal member of the family. Well, Romans 8 will also help us with that, because it's going to tell us what it's like to be in the forever family, crying, Abba, Father. Now, let's, uh, let's, let's wind this down by looking at the upper, other side of this, in verses 15 through 19 of, of Romans 7. I've made some allusions to this, and I will, uh, we'll look at this more, uh, in, in more depth. Now, here's the argument that Paul is indeed a saved man, which is the biblical proper interpretation of this passage, that he is a, he is a Christian. And I pray that if you're struggling with assurance or if you don't know, that you'll look the, at, at these things we've looked at in the backdrop of Romans 6, Romans 8, and you'll work your way through Romans 7, and you'll ask God to use Paul's example to build assurance within you. And the first thing we see, verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you see within Paul's words that may seem kind of confusing? Can you see, though, that there is an undercurrent of humility? That he is, he doesn't want to be like this. He wants to, he wants to be live above these. He wants this. And this is a mark of being converted. There's a humble distress, even, an inward distress over our inability to keep God's law or to obey Him fully. How many times have you been reading your Bible? Perhaps you're reading the Revelation 4 and 5, the great witness uh, worship uh, scene in the Scripture, or maybe you've read some of the Psalms and you see David just exploding with joy of worship. How many times have you, in your own experience, in your prayer life to God, cried out, I long for that day. I long for that day. That the things that I don't want to do, I do, will no longer be true. I long for that day where I can worship you purely, I can love you sincerely, I can have no inward struggle. That's one of the great the great uh, um, aspects of heaven. The cessation of war is over. There's no more inward. There's no more Romans seven. It's forever. Romans eight. It's forever. Revelation four and five. And so a sign of Paul being converted is that he did not like at all the fact that he couldn't measure up. And he blamed it on the fact that there was this invader the remaining sin that hindered him. The things he wanted to do, he couldn't do. Now, what was he like before he was converted? He's a pretty proudful man. In fact, he would say this in Philippians chapter 3. I myself, that's always dangerous when you say, I myself... I, I have reason to be confident in the flesh. He just said that the flesh is what keeps him from doing what he wants to do. But then pre, pre-conversion, he says, I have confidence in the flesh. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's saying, there's no, I have no rival. I am God's gift to his people. I am God's gift. That's what Paul was saying. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to, his, to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law. Now get a hold of this. Paul says, as to the form of righteousness under the law, which he's already destroyed in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans, he says this, he says, but under the law, a righteous under the law, I'm blameless. It's pretty arrogant. Is pretty proudful, and woe would be to a Christian who, who would even think that? That who would think that? Who would even allow that 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 seed of pride to get in there and just taint everything? You know what? You know you have a, like, you know how how bad pride is. One is you can be entrenched with it and don't know it. That's that's bad, but it doesn't take much. In fact, if you took a clear glass of water, it's not a great illustration, but it, it's what I got, is that you got this glass of water and you take a little uh, food coloring, you had a little eyedropper thing, how many drops does it take to discolor the water? One. The devil got kicked out of heaven for one sin. Pride. And he took a hordes of da- angels who became demons with him. Pride, pride is so insinuous because pride elevates a person above the humble Christ. And it puts you on an even plane that we have no business even going. Paul was a prideful man. But in Romans 7 when he says, I can't do these things, but I want to. He's revealing, he's revealing the truth what Jesus says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John Bunyan said this. He that is down need fear no fall. He that is low no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. He that is down, down need fear no fall. He that is low no pride. So the third, I'm sorry, the second the second evidence of Paul's a converted man. One, there's the humble realization he can't he can't do the Christian life. Secondly, is by his inward delight in the law of God. Now, the unconverted person is in, in it just hates God's law. And has nothing to do with it. Why? Because God's law is what brings sanity to humanity. And the reason why in our world is, is absolutely insane and our country is insane is because it has not bowed the knees to the absolute, authoritative, singular truth of God's Word. That's what's wrong. That's what's wrong. Is that no one wants to bow the knee to the authority of God? Why? Because they think it takes the, the joy out of life. You don't get to do what you want to do. You're under the bond. You think you're under the bondage of God's law, when in essence the greatest freedom is under His law. But Paul would say in verse twenty two, "For I delight." in in the law of God, in my inner being. I've said this before. I love to hear babies cry. <laughs> I love babies cry. Start crying, please. I, I, it's, you know what that means? It means we're alive. It means we're not one step away from that place over there. So please, uh, don't make them cry, but if they want to cry, that's, I mean, it's fine. So I love it when they cry. Okay, so his inward delight in the law of God. Look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Delight means to take a high degree of pleasure or mental satisfaction. This isn't just a, 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 a sensual thing. This is a, it's not a fleeting thing. It is a deep-seated pleasure. And Paul would say, in the midst of my struggles, in the midst of all this that I'm going through in Romans 7, I know that I have a delight in God's law. I know that I have a delight in the Scripture. And notice what he says. In his inner being, that is the place with the real us. The real us isn't what people see. The real us is the seat of our affections, which is the heart, which includes the mind and the will and the emotions. And Paul would say, in my very core of my being, I delight in the law of God. Isn't it kind of interesting that when you're converted, you start delighting in the things that God delights in? And if you're going through all kinds of issues with assurance... Here's one sure way is you can ask yourself the question, what is my attitude about the Bible? What is my attitude about God's word? What is my, what is my affection towards this book? And if you can say, this is my life, this is my food, this is, the gate, this, is the, this is the gate to show me my Savior. This is my hope in life and death. This book, if you can say that, you can say with Apostle Paul in the midst of Romans chapter 7, I delight in the law of God in the inward being. Now, I understand there'll be times, you know, that you're not going to wake up and you're on the Mount of Transfiguration and you can't wait to read your Bible. I know you're going to have days like that. That's where spiritual discipline kicks in. And that's where you read it when you don't feel like it. And the more that you do that, you're building a reservoir of truth in your mind that you don't even know. And that when you go through those tsunamis, God is going to bring back, as He promised, Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would bring back the truth to you, that you, through the discipline of daily in the Scripture, and I mean daily, and tomorrow's the first of the year, make it, your, make it, a, make it a desire to pursue reading your Bible through the, entire, through the year. It takes you 20 minutes a day. All of us have 20 minutes we can do. But if you do that, and you say, well, I didn't get anything out of it. I've had times I've read my portion of the day, and a half hour later, I didn't even know what I read. And so, and, and, but I have found out over the years that the more you commit to the spiritual discipline of delighting in His Word apart from the feelings, you are building up a reservoir of truth in your mind, in your heart, that you don't even realize, and that the Spirit of God, during certain periods of your life, He will bring that back to you to be your comfort in time of need. And he will, bring, he will bring scripture to you that you are to share with other Christians at just a precise time. I've had, I've had Christians in this church that have sent me verses and it was just like heaven spoke loudly from heaven. And you have too. That's what God does. And that shows a delight in his word. And as we are now, as Paul says, I delight in the law of God. Isn't, as I mentioned, isn't it interesting that we do delight in the very things that God now delights in? Psalm 51, 6, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Almost the exact thing Paul would say. I delight in your law in the inner being. David says, You The Lord delights in truth and inward being. So now we have the harmony of union. Is the things that we delight in now are the very things that God delights in, and that's a mark of conversion. That's a mark of being, though a Roman 7 person, it also marks that you are also a Roman 6 and a Roman 8 person. Number three, look at verse 25. Um, Here's the third evidence that Paul's a converted man in Romans 7, and that is his attitude of thanksgiving. His attitude of thanksgiving. Hey, when, when, when you're going through tough times, isn't it hard to say thanks? When you're going through tough times, isn't it more to say give me comfort instead of, I give you thanks? Yeah. And nothing wrong with say give me comfort, but make sure that you attach. Give me a comfort according to your will, according to your timing, and I give you thanks that you will. That's what faith does. Faith anticipates and applies even without it being present. And so we have here, Paul says, I thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, though I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So again, he acknowledges this inward battle, but he also is going to give God thanks for the gospel that allows him to overcome in the inward battle. This was a common theme of Paul being a man of thanksgiving. May God help us to be that way more so as we roll into the new year. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, said this, quote, Giving thanks to God for both his temporal and spiritual blessings in our lives is not just a nice thing to do, it is the moral will of God. Failure to give him the thanks due his name is sin, end quote. Did you ever think about that? That when we don't give thanks, it's a sin. It's one of those, as he said, respectable sins, The unregenerate is dominated by unthankfulness. That's all they can do because they're consumed with self-love. Self-love never gives thanks. Self-love is said, what have you done for me recently? And then when that's said, what have you done for me recently? And what have you done for me recently? It just keeps going on and on and on. Self-love is so self-serving that it doesn't have time or does it focus on giving thanks to anyone that has showed the kindness even such as God has given to them. Number four, number four. And this is the last one. The evidence that Paul is a converted man, and I won't read it, but you can do it on your own. Uh, Verses 7, I'm sorry, sorry, verses 9 through 11 of Romans 7, Paul is describing pre-conversion experience. The verbs are past. They're past tense. From Romans uh, 7, verse 14 through 25, they're present tense, and there's a lot of them. So there's clear then a a demarcation line in verse 14 that Paul goes from what he wasn't or what he was unconverted to what he is and so let's find assurance much assurance from the battle of Romans 7 because within the battle there are clear signs that we are in his family because we are in the battle next week Lord willing we're going to look at the believer and daily war against indwelling sin Paul will teach us some things that we can do on a daily basis out of Romans 7 and other portions of Scripture that we'll be able to indeed um, fight the good fight in the midst of living out Romans 7, the sight of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your tremendous love to us, and, and thank you that Romans 7 is in the book so we can, we can actually know what, what goes on in the confusion that's often in our hearts. Thank you that you've not left us to ourselves to figure this out. But also thank you for uh, Romans 6, our position in Christ. And thank you for Romans 8, that's our position as well as the life in the Spirit. Thank you that you not left us to do battle in Romans 7 on our own. May we think on these things, Father, and may we apply those. And Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know anything about the inward struggle of Romans 7, help them to see that's only for the believer. And that they will be awakened to see their sin. That they will see that they are a wretched man, a wretched woman, a wretched uh, young man, a wretched young woman. And that they will come to Christ and get that new life that enables them to fight the good fight. Thank you, Father. And we praise you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.